Hi, friends, and welcome to All Things Relatable, a place where stories are shared. It's hard to put a value on a story because the lasting effects it can have are often priceless. An individual's story has the potential to impact our lives in tremendous ways. My hope for you in joining me today is that this episode resonates with you and that you leave enlightened, ignited, and inspired because it only takes one moment to spark a change and leave an everlasting effect. Marvelous Macy was born on March 20th, 2013. She went straight to the NICU for two weeks with double collapsed lungs. At one, she was diagnosed with a chromosome abnormality. And when Macy was just 20 months old, her family would receive the most heart-wrenching news. Macy had cancer. Macy hadn't even celebrated her second birthday yet and would have to fight for her life. Through the course of her medical journey, Macy has collected over 800 beads of courage, each bead representing a poke, a surgery, a transfusion, and everything else along the way. At first, the cancer had been her parents' worst nightmare, but things got worse. In November of 2016, Macy contracted a bacterial infection that turned septic. The chances of her surviving and still being Macy were not looking good. But guess what? She did survive. She is a fighter. You are probably thinking by now that this has got to be it. Macy and her family have been through it all. Well, there's more. Macy was then diagnosed with an intellectual disability. Macy's mom, Caitlin, is here today to talk about living through all the hard things, how she stayed hopeful when things were heavy and grateful even on those gloomy days. Caitlin is on a mission to help moms find the glitter in the muck of childhood cancer or childhood disability. Hi, Caitlin. I am so excited to have you here today. I feel so grateful that I get to spend some time with you. Oh, I'm grateful to you. Thank you for having me and for that Uh, actually that intro gave me some goosebumps, even though I've lived through all of that, but thank you for the lovely intro and for inviting me to chat with you today. Mm, I can't wait to dive into all the things and talk about your beautiful little girl and your journey. Thank Um, you. So can you take us back to life before Macy arrived? What was your day-to-day like with your boys and your husband? And what was your pregnancy like? Okay, that's a good question. It uh, feels like so long ago. And there's two issues I always have. One is that I have a terrible memory. <laughs> and <laughs> Actually, the second one is probably just that there's just this fog in the last few years, but I've also always had a bad memory. But I know that we had, we thought our family was complete. We had these two boys. And then I really started having this longing for a girl but you can't long for a girl, right? You have to long for another child because you're not guaranteed that. And so I did, I thought, you know what, no matter what, of course, we're going to love this baby and uh, let's try for a third. And so day-to-day was still really busy, right? Because they were young and they're only 15 months apart. So it was busy, but we were obviously through enough of the sort of like initial chaos that I was ready to try and have a third. And it took a long time for us relative to what it had been for the boys. And it always sort of happened quickly for us. And I know that many people struggle with, um, with fertility and with long, long stretches of time of waiting and hoping, but it was long for us. And so after a while, I thought maybe this was not meant to be and and that would be okay. And I remember uh, talking to my mom and saying, I just, I really want to have a baby and I really want to have a girl. And so she said, okay, I'm going to pray exactly for that. And literally one month later, I was pregnant with Macy. <laughs> I, was like, now 
I go to you for all my prayer requests. <laughs> yes. Can yeah. I have her number, please? Yes. <laughs> I'll see if she's okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then um, the pregnancy, I guess, was um, I was measuring small, but there was no really major concerns along the way. And then toward the end, they started to uh, find her just in the breech position. And they thought that they shouldn't do a natural delivery, even though I had had two successful normal vaginal deliveries. Um, So they tried to turn her twice. That was more painful than actual labor. And they, from the externally, right? They try to turn her in your stomach. And I don't recommend that procedure, but it wasn't successful for us. And so we did have a C-section, which, so with my third baby, first C-section. So that was new for us. And basically everything from that point forward was, right? Like she did nothing as we would have thought, as we would plan, or as I had experienced with the two boys. So it was just like, right from the get-go, right? She was my girl and she was my whirlwind and she was all of the things and even our miracle, of course, in the end, but um, nothing, just nothing went the way we were used to it going since the moment she arrived by (laughs) C-section. Right, by C-section and then straight to the NICU. Yes, yeah, so that was our first experience with that too. And, And it was... I mean, the first night I didn't spend at the same hospital with her because they had rushed her off to the NICU. Uh, so we're, we were in High River, which is, let's say, half hour, 40 minutes from the hospital in Calgary, Alberta, where they took her. And so I, I sort of had like a peaceful first night, I guess, because you weren't feeding a new baby, but it was scary because she wasn't with me. And so she was elsewhere. My husband had gone there. And then they brought me by ambulance uh, the next day so that we could be at a different but the same hospital. And so she had collapsed lungs. Um, I don't know if it was because of the C-section mixed with trying to breastfeed her too fast. Like no one really knew exactly why, but that was the main concern. And then she had blood in her stool and and some blood sugar deficiencies and things. So it was just a while of figuring that out. And it was funny because not funny, but um, this was so new to us being in the hospital with a baby because our boys hadn't even hardly gone ever for, you know, a lot of times you are at the hospital for emergency, you know, scrapes or stitches or, or even flu bugs or whatever. We hadn't had a lot of that. So, and I'm not a helicopter mom in any way. Like I'm, I, I sit back, I watch, I assess how badly could this go sideways, If it's not going to be, you know, death threatening. I'm probably going to wait it out a bit. And so I wasn't that mom. Uh, that was rushing to the hospital or anything. So this was just really new, right? To be in that situation. And, uh, and so I remember crying like on the phone to my husband and he thought something was wrong. And I just like, no, I just want to be home. I just want to bring my baby home. Like I just, it was Easter time and I just want to be done. Right. Where, and, and little where did I know. Boys? So they were at home. We are so uh, fortunate that my in-laws live near us. And so that a lot of the time, throughout this journey, they've been able to come on a whim or, you know, in a crisis quickly or stay with the boys, you know, if Josh, my husband was coming back and forth, things like that. So um, it was <laughs> the silver lining was that for recovering from the C-section, I really wasn't moving around because I was in the hospital with her. Whereas if I were at home, of course, you're cleaning counters and the boys want attention and you're doing laundry and all the things. So it was actually in some regards, it was good for my body just to have a little bit of time to take an elevator and 
you know, just be there with Macy. But of course it was still something you wanted to be done and you wanted to be past that. And we thought, well, that will be it. It'll be the end of our scary ICU days. And we just, we didn't, we could never have uh, predicted, of course, like nobody can. <laughs> mm, yeah. So you, yeah, spent the first couple of weeks, finally got your little girl home, the little girl yeah. that you had dreamed about. And yeah. so then what did lo- things look like when she got home? Was she, um, were there any other symptoms or any other things that came up or did life kind of get to, I guess, as normal as it can be with two, two other <laughs> little ones and then a baby yeah. at home? She was like, I thought she was just such a good baby because she would sleep so much. She was the best sleeper I had had from the other two, as far as, as how quickly she was sleeping through the night and things like that. But she wasn't very happy. She wasn't very smiley, which was different. Right. And I just thought it was her personality, which it it could be, but I actually think there was, you know, all this underlying thing, all these underlying things that we didn't know about. And um, so she was you know, sort of content and, but also so content that she wasn't moving around and hitting her milestones, like sort of, you know, air quotes normal. Um, But to the point then where the pediatrician got concerned or where the doctor sent us to a pediatrician and she thought, you know, let's just look into it a little bit and we'll just check. And again, because I wasn't this mom that was really worried. I thought, ah, I just got the chill girl. Like I got the third baby. She's chill. She's a girl. It's all good. I'm just pumped. I'm not worried. <laughs> I mean, a little bit, right. But you're trying to remain pretty, pretty cool about it. And just, you know, she'll, she'll, she'll move, she'll crawl, she'll walk when she's ready. But, um, the pediatrician said, let's do some blood work. And so we did that. And that's when we found out, uh, in the spring, just after she was turned one that she had this chromosome deletion or chromosome abnormality it's called 9p23 so it's a really a rare you know it's not something that you say and people understand what it is and really the geneticist doesn't either like in the sense that they can't say oh she has this and it will look like this right so they were sort of thrust into this unknown um, again but in a different way because this was, we were asking the question, well, will she um, be able to live on her own? Will she get married? Will she do these things that you dream about and think that your daughter will do? And, uh, and the doctor just said, well, maybe, maybe not. You know, there's just really no, I can't answer that for you. And we really won't know too much more till school age in terms of her functional age compared to her real age and things like that. So we were just, we were actually devastated. I was, I really felt like I had dreamed of this little girl. And again, you you don't have a baby knowing that your baby's going to be okay, but you assume, of course, you think they're going to do all of the things that you imagine or that you did or whatever it is, right? It's just the same reason you want your kid to play the sport you love or whatever it is. You have these visions and it really wasn't lining up right? It was really going like, well, maybe it'll line up. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll be so far from what I envision for her that I'll be sad or, and grieve, which we did at the first, you know, at the beginning, but then it's like, but maybe we're going to be learning from this, all of these things. And so we were always trying to keep that in perspective and, and maintain our hope. And we have, you know, faith, but, um, you go through that grieving process, of course, for what you thought things would look like, to what they are looking like they're going to look like. And so we, um, we just 
sort of moved through that, right? We, we grieved through that. And then you, of course, you, you gain up your strength and you go like, hey, we're going to do this. We love our daughter. Now we know what's going on. At least we can help her. Let's get some early intervention. Let's get her some physio. Let's get her, you know, let's, let's help her out. And so um, we sort of geared up for that. That was spring of 2014. And then come the fall, she was really not now physically well. She was vomiting a lot and things like that that were unusual. She hadn't been doing that. And um, like daily, like it seemed a lot. And so we thought we, I think we thought maybe it was dairy or maybe it was the formula, you know, you try hypoallergenic formula, you're sort of playing around with things. And then she stopped crawling because she had, by this point, she had started sitting up and crawling, not walking, but um, she stopped crawling and she just cried all the time, you know, and not like a colicky baby, but a baby that needs to be on your hip. Like something now, of course, in hindsight, something was hurting her body. And so she just wouldn't move, right? She Mm. would just, you couldn't even make rice. She would just sit on the tile floor and, and cry. So you would hold her on your hip and make rice, you know, or whatever the things you had to do of two little toddlers, of course, too, the boys running around. So it was really wearing on us, but also very, um, you know, a bit disconcerting because we're going like, she is not well, she's getting every cold. She's throwing up, she's crying, she's not moving. So we sort of now, even though I'm not this worry, worrying mom, my gut is starting to go like, "Mm, this is not normal. This really does feel like she's not happy and she's not comfortable. And so we weren't really getting anywhere with that gut instinct. Cause I mean, what are they going to do exactly? They kept, our doctor would say, well, her brothers are bringing home a lot of germs from school and she's just, you know, that third baby sometimes is going to get it all right. So it's just going through her system. Okay. And then, um, we ended up back in, I think it was the ICU. Anyway, we ended up back in the hospital for a few nights because she, um, because of this vomiting and the doctor wouldn't refer me to a gastroenterologist or anything like this. We weren't getting really anywhere. And I thought, but I feel like this is why I thought it was something in her gut, right? I thought there's something going on. I want to see a special specialist. And he said, no, no, no. She's just dehydrated and and sick from all of these infections and things like that. So, okay. So we went home. That was October. And then November, she woke up one day with a huge like uh, growth or swelling coming out the side of her neck. Like what you see, like mumps, you know, like you think this huge, you know, it's ballooned out her neck and that's actually what it was because we raced off to children's hospital in calgary and they said yeah it's like a viral infection they tested and they said you know there's nothing really you can do right you can't do antibiotics it's not going to do anything so again oh it's infection she's just getting I'm like this is a lot you yeah. know what i've never had a baby be this sick all the time okay so uh we went back home and that was the beginning of november and now I feel like I've gone on a really long tangent. <laughs> is this no, where no. you wanted me to head? <laughs> okay. Um, Cause you asked about life with Macy at home and it was just this, right? Sort of all of these things, one after the next. So that was November and then come December 1st, uh, that was the day that she was diagnosed with leukemia. And that was a Monday and the Friday before we had seen her doctor. So again, you know, he's suggesting that 
yeah, she's, she's not well, but again, now you've been to the hospital twice. She's had these infections. Again, it's probably okay. But he said, if she gets nosebleeds, she had some bruising that was kind of funny. And again, in, with, um, in hindsight, he kind of said, well, she's toddling around. They bumped themselves and things like that, but she's not toddling around. Right. right? And so I looked back and I thought, but that doesn't make sense. But in the moment, you just want to believe what they're saying. Like, she's going to be fine. This is all normal. And then I looked back and I thought, but why would she have a bump on her head? She's on my hip or else sleeping. Like there's really, she shouldn't have something from, you know, a table bumping her head or something. So there was those kind of things, but he said, if she gets nosebleeds or um, gets these little um, uh, tapiki, what's it called? It's little purple, like almost mini bruises, like pinpricks on your body. Then maybe go to the hospital. So she did get a couple mild nosebleeds, but again, they were so mild that it could have been even the dry air here in Calgary. Um, and come Monday, she was so tired. And like I said, she was always a sleepy baby. And so I'd be so curious to know the answer to the question that I'll never know, but, you know, how long did she have these underlying conditions? Like how long, you know, how much sooner could you have caught it? I don't know, but she was always so sleepy, but this day she slept all day. Like she was awake half an hour you know, and for 20 months old, that's not normal, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm using the word normal, but you know what I mean? And so um, my mother-in-law was over, I was personal training some clients at the time, because I was, I was doing some fitness um, work. And she came into the gym, and she said, Macy has to go to the hospital, she needs to go right now. And I'm in the middle of a session, and my husband's not home. And so we waited for him to come back. And then we, we went off to children's hospital. And we thought, well, let's let her sleep the night, like a little bit, we thought that. But then I also could feel that something had escalated. My mother in law's a nurse, she's going, I don't I don't know if you guys understand, but I, I really think you have to go right now. And she was, you know, obviously 100% correct. And, and I think we knew as we were, the closer we got, and then once we got to emergency, because she was so sick, by this point, in terms of her coloring. She was just white, like the walls. And she was so, so lethargic that she was just over my shoulder, like a rag doll. And they saw us and they sent us right in. And so when they do that, then, you know, you know, mm. you know that it's not good. You're usually waiting for a couple hours. And that's when I start to, started to really understand that um, this wasn't just going to be the same as the other times where they said, you know, she just has a viral infection. So that, and that's really then, of course, life changed again from that night forward. <laughs> right. That would be the night where it's like before and an after, like a clear before and after. So what, yeah. like, was your husband with you when you got the news or your mother-in-law or like, what did that look like? He was with me. So the two of us had taken her and and then they spent hours doing tests, right? So we didn't have any news for a long time, probably not till midnight. And so they were really just poking her and trying. It's really hard when, when you have a blood disorder like that, that they were trying to diagnose to get, actually to get a, the needle in, right? And so she just looked like a pain, pin cushion and it was just awful. And she fought, like this kid had such low blood red blood cell count that uh, it was shocking once we knew the number 
to compare it to the fight that she put up against nurses and doctors. And like, it was unbelievable. So she fought and she fought, she was little. And like I said, really frail and, and tired, but she fought them. And so they just had to do, of course, all of the different x-rays and all of the different blood work. And um, I don't know if that was, I can't remember if it was CT scans and MRIs and I, you know, I lost track, but they did that till about midnight. And then a doctor came in and I still remember her and she was so lovely. And I thought she's probably a mom and she probably this is probably the last place she wants to be and delivering this message. And I still couldn't really sit down with Macy uh, because she was so, well, now she was in pain, but also um, just so out of sorts. And so I was standing because she said, you know, you guys should sit down. And again, you know that whether you know it from the movies or you know it from real life, you don't want somebody to say that to you. And so I couldn't sit down, but I, I think I knew at that point. And uh, I don't know why, if we had Googled anything or I don't know, but um, then she just told us that she has cancer and they didn't know, I think they said leukemia, but they, they couldn't say yet what brand of leukemia, right? Cause there's, there's different, of course, different names, different types, different treatment protocols. But essentially that your 20 month old baby has cancer. Mm. And so that was, I don't even, I don't, this was not a fall to the ground moment. I mean, it's holding Macy. So I couldn't do that. It was just, and we're so exhausted by this point um, that I think it, it, you don't process that until a bit later. For me, I process things a little bit, you know, after the fact. So it just, it hits you. You want to be able to tell somebody so that it's real, you know, like your parents or the people that are close to you. But at the same time, it's midnight and you're there with your husband and you have two kids at home and you're now holding this baby and your world's about to change. And so they said, um, the oncologist that's going to be on your team will come in and meet you at some point. And so she did, you know, in the middle of the night, she came in and, and said hi to us and we would be working with her because we later found out it was a two and a half year long protocol, excuse me for treatment. So that, like you said, the before and the after picture, that's pretty interesting because it kind of felt like we had a before and an after in other small ways. And then our sort of trauma events kept escalating, right? And this was right. another moment where we thought, you know what, remember that time when we were so distraught and we were grieving over her chromosome disorder? Remember that time? And that's a big deal. So it doesn't discredit or dis diminish when those things happen to people. But it was just for us and our journey, it kept getting bigger. And so those things would go on the back burner. You were like, I see you like that time when she had, you know, collapsed lungs <laughs> and I'm making light of it, but you know what I mean? And um, so it just, it really kept our faith had to get stronger, right? As these occurrences got bigger. Right. Oh my goodness. I just can't even imagine my heart just wants to like reach through just getting that news, you and your husband with your little girl. So did you end up like having to stay at the hospital from that point? Or did you get to bring her home? Like how soon did the treatment have to begin? Yeah, right away. So actually that was sort of a sad part for me of the story was that we had said goodbye to the boys and we said, we're going to bring Macy to the hospital and we'll see you tomorrow. Right. And I stayed with Macy in the city for about seven weeks. So it was 
hard on them, right? They didn't, you know, I went maybe once or twice home to see them, you know, or for an overnight and I'd get spelled off. But really, I just, I became, Macy and I kind of became hooked at the hip, right? Um, Literally too, because I would sleep with her and push her around and hold her when she was hooked up to things. And so um, I stayed at the hospital for the first about month. And then we had good friends in the city that actually she was a cancer survivor herself, but she was um, a parent to a friend of mine. And they said, come and stay in our home. We're not even going to be there. We're going to be on vacation. So this was in January. And that way the hospital at home folks could come and administer chemo at a home because where we are in Okotoks, it was a good hour you wanted to count on and it was outside of their perimeter. So it allowed us to be closer to the hospital because the frequency of treatment was still quite high. And, um, and even for emergencies, we didn't want to have to be, to be racing off. And so, and she was in the ICU again at the beginning because she got pneumonia. And so actually they couldn't start treatment right away. They had to wait till the 4th of December, which was my birthday. And that was her first day of chemo. And so I just, I remember this weird juxtaposition, right. Of like opening a birthday present in this one little room to like walking into the room with the people in their hazmat suits to give my daughter chemo. And then like flash forward when we had really devastating news, like you mentioned in 2016, we were in that same little room where, you know, where they're delivering us this news. So there was just, a, and there was all these weird parallels to even um, with the pneumonia because she had that again in 2016. So, um, so they had to wait anyway, till her lungs were healthy enough uh, to start the treatment. And then they do a good blast for the first month of uh, chemo. And they really, just, they try to get it down to what is almost like a zero in your, in your blood cells and bones. And then they do a, a bone marrow aspirate, which is like, um, you know, in the, in your back kind of thing. I, I believe they do that at the beginning and the end and they measure and see how much progress they've gotten of that first sort of hardcore month. And then after that, that next sort of two plus years they're doing, um, there's a whole bunch of different phases, of course, um, of treatment, different sort of formats, different setups, different locations, like for different stints of time in hospital and at home. And, um, and actually, what was I going to say about that? Um, I lost my train of thought, but anyway, we were away from home for the, the seven weeks and then, uh, and then we went, we had to come back and forth a lot. <laughs> wow. So, and you talk about your two little boys at home. So mom's Mm -hmm. gone for seven weeks. Like, what was that like for them? How did they navigate? Um, what, like, was it traumatic? Did they really understand? Were they like feeling abandoned from mom or like, how did they cope with everything that was happening? I think that at the time we thought that they were very resilient. I mean, they were. But when I would see them, I remember one time just thinking, I feel like a kangaroo and I feel like they're trying to climb in my pouch. Like they, they couldn't get closer if they, try, you know, if they try, they were just like, so craving my, just the connection, right. And just the time and sharing the same home and space that I just remember thinking like, and it was hard because I want to give that to them, but I'm also so um, t- tapped out, right that I was sort of in that place of like, I actually want no one touching me, but I feel so badly for you because you haven't seen me and I love you, but we're just, you know, it's just a really hard place to be in. 
And so, I mean, the plus, because the plus for them is that my in-laws are close. And so what happened is their papa, who they adore, moved into our house for that first month or more. And so he was really at least a steady person there for them because their dad would come and go to the hospital almost every day. Right. And I was staying there overnight and then Grammy would come and go to the hospital. And also lots of people reached out and did play dates or fun activities or brought presents or to think what you do in a crisis with the children is you really try to support them through all of those things, right? Like here's the, the delicious food and here are the Lego sets and here are all the things. And that's good. You know, that is coping, it's soothing, it's, it helps them, right? To take their mind off of what's really happening. Uh, but that event and me being gone for sure. And then the, the several years then of treatment and then our um, event in 2016 really meant that, yes, it was like this cumulative buildup of trauma, I think for them. And we saw a lot of the outcome of that after that time, a lot of anxiety and um, weepiness and emotional instability. And yes, they are resilient. And people will always say that to you, right? Your kids are resilient. And I've said it many times. And I do believe that to be true. But you can't just assume that and not get them a support system, right? To help them get out of it. Just like you need it, right? Of course they need it too. Yes. I absolutely loved how you mentioned that. Like kids are so resilient and on the other side of whatever they've made it through, right? They still have all of the stuff to kind of go through and decompress. And when you're on autopilot or you just survive it, or you, you know, show up, um, you know, doing the Lego sits, thank goodness you had this community and your Mm -hmm. in-laws were there and, and got to step in and create these relationships with your, your boys. But yeah, like you said, afterwards, as adults, we have to sometimes go on autopilot and then deal with all the stuff after mm-hmm. the kids. Sometimes I, f- I feel like they're forgotten. We just think, oh, mm-hmm. they're so resilient, but they hold on to that stuff too and need an outlet to deal with everything that they went through, even though, like you said, they are so resilient. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think I've noticed that more and more because even now, even though we're years of sort of out of really the height of the trauma stuff, we, um, my husband and I still are working on healing and still struggle sometimes with, um, anxiety and being able to relax into what life is now, right. We're not in that, but you, it takes time. And so sometimes when you're getting frustrated with your kids, and going like, how come you're falling apart and crying at the drop of a hat? Or how come you're being this way or that way? My husband reminded me because we were just away on vacation, trying to relax. And, uh, and when that would happen, he would say, but you know, they are also healing. Like they also went through all of it. And so why would we expect them to be perfect examples of stable humans, right? I mean, they're children. (laughs) Um, But if we can't pull it together, then we can't expect them either, right? To sort of be all the way through it. Even though you think they were young and it was years ago. It's like, yeah, well, it was years ago and it's still hard for us. So (laughs) it takes Mm -hmm. time. And yeah, their children like toppled with all of that they've went through. And then yeah, healing can be so messy too. It isn't it doesn't just, you know, ride this P 
peaceful, lovely flowing course, it can get messy. So like, what has the healing process kind of looked like for you? Well, like I mentioned, I'm still doing that. I think, you know, I'm still really working through what what's remaining, like, and will it always be that way? You know, because I think of people that, that lost their child and we came very close, but I find it interesting, right. That the trauma is still had such an impact and the grief was still so real and we have her in our life. (laughs) But, um, for me, sort of like that initial diagnosis in the moment, I tend to be protected, you know, from God, uh, from adrenaline, right. Uh, Like many people, I think, you know, when you're in the, in the height of it, you're on autopilot or for me, I sort of take it on like a project and we're going to manage this and we can do this. And of course, not every day. I don't wake up thinking like I've got this, but um, you just don't really realize the toll it's taking. That's for me until later. And so I, I really find myself now um, having sort of a lot of self-reflection where I go, wait a minute, I'm responding in a way that does not feel appropriate for this scenario. Right. And you go, perhaps this is uh, connected right? To that sort of stress response and how quickly I can go from sort of calm to that fight or flight or freeze mode. And so that's really still there. And I still have to combat that and go like, this is not an urgent thing. You know what I'm dealing with right now. It does not matter that the plans changed last minute for the barbecue or whatever, but it like sucks me right back to when we were doing logistical gymnastics, like all the time. And so my brain was always you know however many steps ahead just in case right you were always planning like what if uh she gets a fever in this exact moment and then where are the boys gonna go and 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 do I have the things that I need and where's my is my husband here or are we on travel like are my in-laws around do I have any like one time I remember I did have to race to the hospital and the boys I had nobody except for a friend who they barely knew that was able to wait at the bus for them so they got off the bus to meet somebody that they were like, I think that's my mom's friend. It's like stranger danger. You're not supposed to go with people that you barely know, right? But that's like, you have to go with this lady now and she's going to watch you until we don't know when, you know? And um, so I think I have to remind myself that um, first of all, you can't plan things. And I learned that we've learned that of course, through real life examples, but it's not doing me any good to be this wound up ball of anxiety that's constantly trying to, it's not what ifing because I'm afraid. It's an anxiety response, right? It's a, it's more of a, just always trying to get done or get ahead or get be planned in case of whatever. And um, it just, it's interesting, right? Cause I'm just going like, Hey, I think you still have quite a bit of work left to do <laughs> on yourself. You know, you're and, and it's partly because she has that intellectual disability. So we still have a lot of unknown trajectories with her in terms of what her future looks like. And we still have a lot of day-to-day work because she is extra. She's extra, she's extra amazing, but she's also extra um, exhausting. And so we have that, you know, those behavioral challenges and those academic challenges. And so, and mobility and not that she's not a, you don't look at her and see a medical uh, child or medical medically fragile child because she isn't anymore but she has a whole team of therapists, right? And there's work, there's just work with all of these different wonderful people, right? But to keep on top of, and then, um, and then her 
her volume, right? Her presence is big and loud and, um, and we love it. And then we also need breaks from it. But um, I don't know if I really answered your question. For me, I had to do a lot of therapy, a lot of writing, a lot of prayer, a lot of exercise, you know, eating well. Those are my, I guess those are my five things, right? Where it's, I need those things and I need my community, of course, of friends and family to help me navigate that, right? And as I've said, I'm still figuring out how to um, just feel a little bit more, you know, just be able to breathe <laughs> a mm. little bit lighter, a little, li- little lighter. I yeah. totally relate to that, that breathing thing where yeah. my whole entire life, I never had anxiety. And I feel so blessed to say that I never even knew what it was until, um, yeah, my son went through some medical things and, and then I couldn't breathe anymore. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what is this? And somebody's like, that's anxiety. And I was like, what? Like I, the people who have anxiety living with it from a young or early age or like, man, that like not being able to breathe, you, you kind of take it for granted unless you've ever been in a situation like that, where it's like to get light. I totally get that. Just breathe easily. Yeah. Just be able to also find the delight in your day. It's hard to do it if you're tense, right. And not breathing. (laughs) And I think there was some PTSD too, right. Because even still there's, there's moments where like we're playing dominoes or something and it sounds so loud. Like it just, it's like in my body, I can feel the, the fork on the plate, like the noise of it, or, you know, little things bouncing ball. And, you know, you see those stories of, of soldiers coming back and like, like a toy sound goes off and it triggers something for them. And for me, of course, it's not at all comparable to that in that same way, but there is something about that really grating on my nerves, like the volume of things around me, they feel heightened or the Mm. noise of kids. It feels like really elevated and you go like, I need to get used to this and be like fun mom. But really, I'm just like, oh, okay, everything feels really, really loud. Right. And Macy is actually loud, but like that example, the dominoes or the fork or the ball, like I've just noticed that lately and I go, wow, okay. I just need to, I need to be able to calm my, you know, sympathetic nervous system like down. <laughs> you right. Yeah. And you, yeah. So your cancer journey was two and a half years. So did that journey kind of come to a complete before the diagnosis of the disac- the intellectual disability, or did you find that in the journey of the treatment? Like when did that kind of come to a head? No, it was after. So we had been through the, um, cancer treatment through the, um, the sepsis, right. And the life support, um, event. And right. then, okay. Pause yeah. for a sec. Cause that, that was a huge, <laughs> yeah. that was a huge event. And that was, um, as you had mentioned before, uh, or I've heard you talk about like the cancer was one thing, which was absolutely, uh, a worse, your worst nightmare, but then there was the sepsis. So can you kind of describe what happened then and how it all? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So we actually, this was fall of 2016 and things were starting to feel more normal. Like we were able to go to Walmart or do some things as a family. And we had done so many things either because her immune system was weak and she couldn't go out and about or separated because of treatment or um, her ability to do things. And so it was feeling better. I was getting back to the gym, you know, feeling more like myself. And then she started to get sick again. And this time it was with us. She, she couldn't catch her breath. So she was just like really labored. Her breathing was really labored. And we thought that it was just a bad cold, but with um, somebody who's immunocompromised or just watching for fevers all the time. So we would have, as soon as she has a fever, we have to call the hospital. She wasn't getting a fever, but then it got so labored that, and you know, I mentioned the parallels and, and this was so interesting because again, I was out for supper with my husband and my dad who was visiting from Ontario and my mother-in-law's with Macy, just like when she was diagnosed with cancer. Um, and she calls and says she has to go to the hospital. And so I knew already that she was having trouble with getting her air, but now my mother-in-law again, setting eyes on her and going like, mm, my gut is telling me that she needs to go to the hospital. And again, she was right. And so we went home and went to the hospital and said goodbye to the boys. We'll be back tomorrow. And then again, it was about six weeks before I was home with Macy. So I feel like any um, sort of of that leftover trauma from that original event was, was turned up uh, with this happening. Um, but of course, this time it was uh, a life-threatening event. And so it was, you know, it trumped everything before, just like I joked about sort of with the cancer, you know, making us not as focused on the chromosome abnormality. Uh, this time around, we show up at the hospital and such a parallel to them going like, I wonder if she should be in the ICU or not. Yeah, I think we're going to do it just in case. And then she really did need to be in the ICU. And they couldn't, they tried all the different oxygen methods that they have to get her, her air and it wasn't working. And so I think at about three in the morning, they said, we're going to have to put her on a ventilator, which I had at this point, I had only seen on television or maybe other babies in the hospital because I was in the hospital a lot but this was not something we had experienced and so I texted my mother-in-law who was still awake or heard my text 3 a.m she got in her car and drove to the hospital I think my husband was not there he was with the boys because again we didn't know what was happening and I go to the hospital with Macy all the time so um you know we didn't know that it was going to be as much of a trauma as it ended up being. And then the ventilator really wasn't doing the trick and they just couldn't get, this is now all night long. And so they just really couldn't get her stable. Right. And then things are starting to, to fail. And so this was that tiny little room that I had my birthday present in before she started chemo that we were now being asked to please come sit in the tiny little room. And that's, that's the tiny little room no one wants to sit in, right? Nobody wants a doctor to say, come in here and close the door. And there's no windows and there's a sign to not, to, you know, do not disturb. And my husband and mother-in-law, and I think sister-in-law were there. And this is the point where they say, uh, we, we kind of have reached a point where we're, we're not able to get her stable and we're just about out of options. And so it had really just escalated, right? Overnight, we went thinking that she had a very bad virus or something. And, um, and now we're in this little room. 
And so she said the only really um, option that we could potentially try is to put her on ECMO, which I cannot remember the long name for that, but that is an acronym for a type of life support machine that they can use at this Calgary Children's Hospital and support for about 12 hours. But then they have to fly you to a different city, to Edmonton, three hours up the highway for the sort of long-term care on that machine, because it's very obviously intensive and expensive. And um, so they had uh, a doctor that had brought that to Calgary a few years back, which saved Macy's life. Um, and so they said, you know, you have a decision to make. There's a whole bunch of side effects that could happen uh, being, you know, things like stroke. Um, and that's, that's the only time I can remember falling to the ground with my scream cry, just like right out of the movies, you know, and that's, that was because I did not want her to be in the in-between. And I was ready for her to be either happy and peaceful and done fighting or be the miracle. But I just couldn't, I just couldn't do the in-between. I don't know if that's fair, but that's how I felt. And, um, and so that was my, my only really sort of crumble to the ground moment. I'm sure I had many private ones, but that was like a no, 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 this can't be happening. And, uh, and that was sort of it. And then we had to go and decide. And they're saying that with her immune, with her being so immunocompromised, uh, we're not even sure that we can get her on the machine. But, you know, if we can, she has a slim chance of survival. But what, well, what other choice do you have, right? That it's that or nothing. So in about half an hour after that, they said, we're mobilizing a team. Did you make a decision? Uh, well, of course we said, yeah, go do it. And so then they spent hours and hours and hours getting her set up on this machinery that you can't even believe. And uh, she had these metal cannulas they're called like almost like thick IVs in her neck, two of them. And they had a lot of trouble getting another line, I think in the other side of her neck. And there wasn't a spot on her body that wasn't covered in an, or hooked up to an IV. And that is a picture that will take your breath away. Um, the photograph of that moment. Um, and you couldn't hold her. You couldn't hardly find skin to touch on her body. And um, they just prepared for her flight crew and we couldn't even be on the plane. So we had to say goodbye. We had her boys pulled out. The boys were pulled out of school that day at about noon to come to the hospital. And like their uncle picked them up which would never happen ever from Calgary to Okotoks to pick them up. And, uh, and they came to the hospital and my son, you know, speaking of the effects, the after effects, my older, my older son, who was seven at the time, he would recount that day for years later as the worst day of his life to nurses at camp or like things like that would happen. And he would say the worst day of my life was when uncle Steve came to pick me up from school and I thought we were going to the hospital to have fun because he's sort of associated it with like fun, I guess, like there's stuffed animals and bingo and stuff and see Macy because they were so used to it. And uh, instead, when we got there, you know, Papa's crying and everybody's sad. And um, my dad was supposed to get on the plane that morning because um, I mentioned he was visiting from Ontario and we called him at the airport and said, don't get on the plane. So he was there. 
and we brought the boys in to see her and to say goodbye. And um, we didn't know if that, if that was their final goodbye to their, their baby sister, sorry, <laughs> or not. And um, <laughs> Christmas was coming and all of the things, this is the end of November. And so um, we just, we surrendered her. I felt really, I don't know if peace is the right word, but I knew that I had to do that. And I felt protected and I felt strengthened to be able to surrender her and go like, this is not my, this is not her life. This is not my life. This is yours, God. So you decide um, what's going to happen. And um, I know there was angels in that room. And then, cause we heard that actually as a story later, somebody actually saw them with their very own eyes and they didn't tell us about that until after when she was better. They said, I saw angels in the room and they said that she was going to be okay. But then I wasn't supposed to tell you that. <laughs> it's like, that would have been nice information. <laughs> um, so she was protected by the heavens and off she went. And then we followed her in a convoy the boys again we had papa swoop in and stay with the boys and then josh uh traveled with my dad and i traveled with his mom and now i haven't slept like this is the next day right so like i haven't slept all night and we're driving to edmonton but again that's that adrenaline right you just you're awake you are awake and um and so where do i go with this we were there um for about 11 days but when we arrived there, they didn't know how long it would be. So we were like, do we need an apartment for six months? Like, are we in Edmonton now for, and for how long, like, what do we do with the boys and what do we do all the things? And, um, but we're really, we're just fighting day to day, obviously. And so the second day we were there, they said, we're going to, we need to do a CT scan to see if there's brain activity. And so they have to move her with like eight adults and all this machinery which is precarious, like just to move her to do this exam. And um, thankfully they found that there was brain activity and so they could keep going, keep going with this machine. My dad laid oil on her and we just were there. We, we decorated her room with um, all of the pictures and all of the light and love and like the, the actual lights and music and her blankets and her stuffies and like, Christmas trees and just everything because the doctor said you should put a picture so we can see what she looks like in real life. And yeah. so me going in project mode, I was like, Oh well, yeah, now you're getting 1000 pictures. <laughs> you're not getting one. <laughs> and so I spent a lot of hours just like, you know, on my computer making, finding photos and printing photos and just making it a special place. Right. Um, filled with music that played all the time. And so um, she then ended up really truly as a miracle because when they were able to take her off the machine she had to stay on the ventilator and but they were able to take her off and fly her back to Calgary and it was so interesting how like this is the wrong expression but the tables had turned because we were arriving at the ICU and we were rejoicing like we were like we are so excited to be in the ICU and we just said, this is such a strange 
world and life that we're so happy to be in the ICU, but it was familiar territory. Right. And, and we knew that it was a downgrade from where we had been and she was there and we had all these doctors and nurses and like technicians coming almost like we were in a museum or like art gallery exhibit because they wanted to see with their own eyes that this little baby had come back. They did not, I don't think, believe that that would happen. Right. And, and when I asked them like, what now, like after she got off the ventilator and then went level down, down, down of the different breathing apparatuses. And once we moved from ICU to the oncology ward, I said like, now what they're like, we don't know. This has never happened before. Like, of course not, because why would she do anything according <laughs> to the script? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so she made it. They And when the doctors tell you that you've got a miracle on your hands, you believe, you already know it, but you believe it extra when the doctors confirm it. <laughs> oh, yes. From what yeah. they see every day and them coming in to to witness this little girl is back that, that went off and she's back in our space. Like that must've felt so incredible just to know that. Yeah. yeah, They, they just saw the miracle and she was a miracle. I mean, she has been a fighter since the day she was born. Yes. And 100%. Yeah. She's, she's here to stay. And you said she's, she's got a big personality and you hear her yeah. and she's loud and yeah, she, she is a fighter. So you went through that. I mean, I, I it just is like unfathomable that you've been through all of these things and then it's still, that was not it. Right. And then you get another diagnosis so was, was something, did you, did your mother-in-law notice something else? Was there anything you noticed or how did that come about? That they followed her quite closely, of course, after they would monitor her like neurologically every year. And then they would be following her, her milestones and things because of both chemotherapy and the side effects, the long-term effects of that on children. And also because of her chromosome disorder. So she was kind of like already in the docket, I guess, right. To, to watch. And so they just did uh, the um, what's it called? They, they did a huge assessment, right. Of her um, through the neurology department. And I forget what it's called off the top of my head, but um, they did that to see where she, where she was, right. And whether or not there was anything, any, anything that we were missing as she was entering kindergarten. So, you know, because it's tying to the school timeline, they wanted to check everything out. And so that's was more an initiative on their, on their part. And also as we were preparing for kindergarten, like we already knew that she had some limitations just based on she already was in early intervention programs because of her chromosome abnormality. So through preschool, she had already had AIDS and things like that. And then it had gotten disrupted, right? For months, like she didn't go to preschool from November 16 till I think she went back in May. So, I mean, she had huge gaps, right? And then she also physically, like from a physiotherapy point of view, she um, had to relearn how to walk three times because minor event she also broke her leg during treatment so there was three different times that she you know learned to walk because after ECMO after the life support she couldn't even sit up right so it was like 
really relearning your mobility. So anyway, they were, you know, just monitoring her because of all of these things. And so um, they did this assessment and that was where we came in on September, I think 6th of 2019. And that's when she said that she has, and they said it was on the mild side, this intellectual disability, again, with an unknown trajectory, again, with a functional age of probably more like four and she's now eight. Um, but that again, we would have to watch it present itself and, and see how that goes once she's in, you know, in school. And so, I mean, it really, it allowed us to get a lot of support. Our school has been amazing for getting support at school with AIDS and things. And then we continue to have support through like the, um, here in Alberta, it's FSCD, but like family support, disability, you know, networks and things like that. So that's why she has a team with physio and speech and occupational therapist and a psychologist and an aide. And so that, um, yeah, it wasn't us really noticing anything, although we knew that she was not presenting like other, let's say at the time, you know, five, six-year-olds, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. So through this journey, um, you started writing and you now have a book. I kind of dug around and saw the most beautiful thing that your husband had said. You, you were kind of talking and he said, you know, you were worried about, you know, what about the money to putting this book and what if it, you know, and he's like, for me, if it was just a book for you, like kind of going through your therapy or something just for Macy, if there was one book and it was hers, like that he was backing you and so supportive. And that I was like, you know, this, this book is going to, um, I just think spread like wildfire. The message in it is incredible. Um, so you now have a book, Marvelous Macy. Can you talk about the book and what it represents for you and your family? Sure. Yeah. I um, originally thought that I was going to write a book for adults because I wrote a blog throughout the time when Macy was in treatment that became a therapy for me. Um, it started as an information, you know, a way to share with people what was going on and to get their help or prayer or whatever. And then it really turned into like, now I'm going to give them a glimpse into our world through my writing. And that's what they kept saying. It's really allowing me to get just a little bit of perspective or, or more understanding of what it's like. And then it was just therapeutic. And I've always, always been a writer right, since young in that way. And I started to weed through all of like these, all of the journals that I kept and all the, the blog that I had written and the bins of messages from people and just all the notes I took of like the rounds that the doctors would do. And cause I'm a note taker also. So it was just like, it was so overwhelming that I thought I am going to do that, but I'm not going to do that yet. I think I need to start with a children's book, which I had never thought I was going to do. Like it was a totally a new kind of spark that came along. And I thought, but that way it's for Macy. It's about Macy. It's for Macy. It's on a smaller scale and I can use this to heal, but not quite as intensely as it's going to be with the adult one, because it's hard. You're looking through pictures and you're reliving memories and you're reading things you wrote in the really dark sort of days. And, you know, all of this stuff, it's churning up all of these feelings. And, uh, and that was even enough with just the picture book. 
And so I decided I'm going to do this for Macy and about her because she is such a delight. And that's why it's called the delightful days because she really truly gets up and lives for today, right? She is in the day. She is, you know, present and she's making today the best day ever. And that's what I say in the book, right? Is that it's for kids that, you know, even when things are hard, today is the best day ever, or you can make today the best day ever, even when things are hard. And she does that. And she's had to do that for her whole life. Like there's just never been a moment where she isn't, you know, either behind and we're working to try to help her, you know, or actually fighting. And yet she's, she's the person that literally, we just got this new cabin and we go down to the beach and she wants to meet everybody on the beach. (laughs) And I'm 13 now all of a sudden, and I'm shy. And I like, don't want to go up to just random crowds of adults. And she's like, let's go meet them. Come on, come with me. And she goes up and she says, hi, my name is Macy. What's your name? And then she proceeds to say like, who's beside you? Like, is that your husband or your son or your whomever? And who do you have at home? And you know, I like your shirt and just this ability to make connections and make people uh, talk to one another. Right. And she's pulling me into that world. And so um, I think that was a bit of a tangent, but yeah, so I decided let's keep it small. Although that is um, a bit of a misnomer because it's kind of a big actually undertaking to do a picture book, but um, that's what I did. And um, I'm really pleased with it. I think it has a message of hope, which is really my underlying message for kids and adults that there is glitter in the muck. You may not always feel like it, but it does exist. Right. And, uh, and that's what I'm, I'm hoping will come from both the picture book and whatever comes in the future. <laughs> mm, I love that. So beautiful. Okay. I have a couple <laughs> final questions for you. Okay. Uh, my first one is, okay. So we just talked about your book that you have for Macy. If you wrote a book about your sons, what would the titles be for each? Well, Hudson, I call the negotiator and Sawyer, I call the accommodator. And so I would have to use probably those um, sort of nicknames. And then the titles, I think, honestly, they're superheroes in their own right. And, and so it would be like the sibling superheroes. And I, in fact, do want to write a book that touches more on that because I think that they have been through what we have been through on the sidelines and have come out really as kids that are going to have an extra sense of compassion and empathy, I think for people. Right. And I think it's just going to do them. It's going to do the people around them such a service to have these boys that have seen, you know, some hard things. And so, yeah, they're superheroes too. It would have to be along those lines. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Um, what are some examples of the glitter in the muck that you have found? Well, um, for me, I guess, you know, writing the book has been one thing that has been a really positive experience because it's, it's sort of allowed me to be affirmed in my belief that Macy is so delightful because people go, well, yeah, she is like, she makes me so happy. And, um, and she lights up the room and it was sort of affirmation that I didn't make that up. Like, just because she's a miracle 
and my daughter, you know, you could be biased. And it's like, no, actually people are really charmed by her and she's really delightful. And so that was just kind of really good for me to work through it and go like, this is a real thing. And this is my daughter and I can be so proud and happy that she's in my life. And, um, and then I guess just to use it, right. That something awful, you know, was we experienced something awful, that something, you know, positive could come from it because if we can, if we are able to then support some other people through a crisis or offer hope to people with whatever it is that they are dealt with and whatever hard or heavy seasons of life that they have, um, that they're going through right now, that whether it's the picture book or whether it's the things that I write on my blog or emails or things like that, I try to keep it pretty, pretty, pretty true to life. You know, like it's not me saying that every day really truly is the best ever, but it's, it's, you know, Macy lives that way and she doesn't let the little things ruin that right. Where we can sometimes get stuck in a negative loop. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty real about the things that are hard, but I also just, I don't want to stay stuck there. Right. I want to take all of those lessons and turn it into glitter. Even if I have to like force it some days, because <laughs> we do right. Some days we, we yes. go like, okay, I can see it, but I don't feel it. I know it's there. Um, and then the other thing, I guess, which is kind of a sort of a small thing, but I feel like I have so much patience that has come by force of just waiting, 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 um, for hours and hours and, um, being at the mercy of just, you know, the logistics or the hospital schedule. And, um, it's really, it does me well with Macy because she, you know, has her demands. And so you have to be able to push back or wait her out or, or whatever the case may be. Right. But you can't rush her. So the patience really helps when you want to rush a kid and you can't rush her. It's going to go, it's going to really go sideways. (laughs) I think that's actually some glitter because I need my patience. (laughs) I love that. That's so great. Okay. So this sort of leads into the next question. What are some of the most memorable ways that people have reached out or supported your family along the way? Oh, we had such an amazing support system. Um, at the very beginning, my husband's work actually put together a spreadsheet and they, they called it project Macy and they put on a silent auction, like huge, um, you know, sit down meal and, um, to honor Macy, to help us financially to, um, this was right at the very beginning of her cancer diagnosis. And then also the spreadsheet had all these other ideas of ways they could help. Uh, like everything from house cleaning to putting up our Christmas lights to doing like Christmas wrapping our Christmas presents. And so it was very, it was practical, but it was also like, just say yes, or just say no. And then we'll do it. Right. It wasn't like waiting on us to say, um, can somebody help us? Like we're drowning with, uh, meals or whatever. It was just like, we will do all of these things. And so that was happening with his work, but it was also happening with our church and our friends. So they all did it in their own way, but like we had, you know, fitness friend group would take up a collection. And then we had like, um, another like fitness thing in town, they did a a karma event where they fundraise money. And then, um, I had a a girlfriend that made me all these zip, like from the dollar store, like the zip bags, not quite Ziploc bags, like they're fabric, but she filled like 15 of them for me to grab when I was going to the hospital. And so that was like, really significant and really touching. And each one had like, it had crayons or little things for Macy, but it had, you know, dental floss or nail clippers or pad of paper and a pen 
or, you know, some candy and like a card with a quote or something in it. And it was really, really helpful. Like, I feel like that was a great practical, but also sentimental gesture. And then people did everything from take our kids, you know, to do fun things, to play dates, um, to meals, like packing our freezer. We didn't have a freezer. They had to buy it. And twice that happened because we thought (laughs) we're through the hard times. Let's sell the deep freeze. And then they had to buy us another deep freeze. (laughs) So yeah, it was pretty amazing. All of the both financial, practical and emotional support that we had. So I didn't really answer your question because I don't want to leave anyone out. No, (laughs) that is incredible. And I think that gives people, um, some different ideas of how they can help support someone who is going through a crisis or a traumatic event, because it is hard. And I know that you're working on something to help people navigate that because, oh, wow. (laughs) I have it done. Yeah. It is hard. And I wanted to, I've had people recently over the last, well, since it happened to us, um, if they have a friend or a colleague who has a child diagnosed with leukemia, then they think, well, I'm going to ask Caitlin what advice she might have, right. For helping. And I thought, well, many people would be in that same situation. Like whatever you went through with your son, right. Like somebody knows like, Oh, so-and-so went through a similar thing. I'm going to put you onto them. And so I think no matter what hard thing you did, whatever crisis you went through, somebody is going to come to you and go like, I have a friend or I am going through something similar and I don't know um, what to do or I want to help my friend, whatever the case may be. So through my own experience and collecting information from other people, I just put together what I'm calling a roadmap, but it's for supporting someone through a crisis. And so it's literally step by step. And then there's just a few tips. It's meant to be easy to read. Nobody wants to read a giant book. And some of it is simple as here are some things maybe you don't say. You know, because everybody doesn't know what to say. You don't know what to say. You feel awkward and you feel sad and you want to help. And so you say like, let me know what you need. And they never will, right? Because it's just, you're having a hard time. If you're in a really big crisis, it's very hard for you to maybe even know what you need, but secondly, to reach out, right? And say, okay, I'm ready for that. Remember that time you said anything? (laughs) I'm ready for that now. That thing now. Difficult, you know, or like, don't say um, at least followed by anything right? Like at least it's the good kind of cancer or, you know, things like that, that people have such good intentions, right? They're trying to help you find the silver lining or they are awkward and they don't know what to say. Right. And so, or practically, what are the things like, Oh, shoveling snow. I can totally do that. I just didn't think of that. Right. So it's just to give those ideas and say, like, just do the things, you know, you can ask them, like, here's all the things that I've come up with that I think would help. And you can say, yes, to all of them. You can say no to all of them. Right. But then we'll just go do it. We'll go execute it. And so I hope that maybe that can be helpful because even if you all of a sudden had a friend supporting another friend, you could say, here's a roadmap, right? Here's a tool. Here's something. Maybe you can glean some tidbits from it. (laughs) Mm, I love that. I know. I feel like it, it would just grow the community because I know you know, I've been through a lot of hard things, but still, it is still when somebody that you love and care about is going through heartbreak, it sometimes it is so difficult, even if, even though you've been through it, it's like, well, how, how, what do I say? What don't I say? How do I show up? But you kind of draw a blank sometimes and maybe don't even show up at all because you don't know what 
you know, it's appropriate or not. So I think that's going to be such a great tool for so many people to create community and for people to be, feel more supported maybe when they're going through times of crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks. I hope so. Yeah. Cause I'm the same. doesn't matter. And that you've been through hard things, you still want to show up in the right way. And you have to sometimes stop and think about what that might look like. Yes. Um, okay. Lastly, where can people find your book and how can people help you along the journey of spreading your message of hope? Well, you can find my book on my website, which is caitlinbangson.com or on amazon.com.ca, etc. Um, I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Caitlin Bankson author. And so, I mean, you can share things that you, that resonate with you, of course, that help spread that message. And I do try to post things that um, point toward hope. Um, the roadmap also you can grab and use or, or give to somebody, right. That maybe is currently going through a crisis or not so much. It's not really for people going through the crisis It's for their support network, but you could pass it on to that person or those people. And that's just caitlinbankson.com forward slash freebies. And you just put your name in and you can, you can grab that. Um, Helping me spread my message of hope, I guess, would just really be like to connect with me, to get engaged, to, to, to find the things that resonate, maybe to reach out and say, can you write something about, you know, this or that because I really like to use writing to just like an artist right paints a picture that you know really feels beautiful and moves your soul I feel like for writing you want to be able to write in a way that someone goes like that's exactly what I was thinking but I couldn't describe it right and so um I love to be able to do that or um, just connect with me through email or anything and we can can chat further about, um, anything that, um, maybe you have a need for right. And that along those lines and the, yeah, like yeah, I said, where you can find the book and there's a song and a video and a few other things like that, that you can go that go along with the book and then other freebies that go with the book. So this, obviously the roadmap is an adult tool, but there's a whole bunch of things that go with the book that are free. So there's like an affirmation word search, there's coloring pages, there's uh, spot the difference. There's, uh, uh, posters, you know, like positive quotes and things like that. So um, I guess just spreading the message, spreading the book, getting the book, reading it to your kids, right? And and just going like, in my, my dream would be that it's like a must have for parents, for educators, to start those conversations. You know, there's the conversations about perseverance and diversity and inclusion. But there's also conversations about like, how are we different? How are we the same? How um when do you need to recharge and how do you know that you need to recharge? Like, because it talks about recharging in the book and uh, uh, what was I, I made a few notes. What was the other thing? Um, how do we connect with others? Cause like I said, she's so good at connecting that you can start those conversations with your kids. You know, what's a simple way to, to make a connection, to talk to somebody, right. To look someone in the eye and give them a compliment and, you know, so I just think there's a lot of um, positive, there are a lot of positive messages in the book. So I think that would help spread the message as well. <laughs> I love that. What a blessing your marvelous, delightful Macy is. And <laughs> I am just so inspired by the way that you've, you know, navigated this journey that you've been on and the message of hope. Finding the glitter in the muck is 
going to uh, resonate, I think, with so many people that have been through or are going through the muck right now. So thank you so much for being here and sharing your story and Macy with all of us. Thank you, Candace. It's just been a pleasure for me. I really enjoyed your questions, even though I had to stay, I had to stay open to no scripts. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Well, it is a been a, been a beautiful journey and I cannot wait to see where things go next for you and your family. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me on today's episode of All Things Relatable. If you know someone that would relate to this episode and get value from it, please pass it along. Also, if this episode resonated with you, I would love for you to rate, review, and subscribe.